0: You're about to listen to a conversation between me and my dear Dharma brother, Nathan Ralia. Nathan and I go back pretty far. We met in freshmen's in college, both kind of connecting around surfing. But as college went on, we both committed more fully to the Buddhist or Dharmic path. For Nathan, around the age of 22, he really locked into Shambhala, living at Shambhala Mountain Center out in Colorado eventually going to Naropa University, which has affiliation to Shambhala, and becoming the executive director of Shambhala Center in Denver. Since then, he's held a number of roles in the Shambhala community, and currently resides at Karma Choling, a residential meditation retreat center in Vermont, where he's also a school counselor. In this conversation, we talk about Nathan's journey, his first getting hooked by enlightened society, his commitment to his guru, Sakyang Nipam Rinpoche, and being on the tantric or Vajrayana path, which can be hard to talk about at times because it's secret. And he tries to do his best to share while honoring his oath. So yeah, do enjoy this conversation. Thank you.
1: You're welcome man it's good to be here thank you for having me
0: yeah thank you i usually start with just like a moment of silence just so we mm. can kind of tune in and uh, get connected you know mm. yeah yeah when i was thinking about having you on um oh, i got a lot of tenderness right now just as we're together um <laughs> yeah because we got like a lot of history you know in some Your ways friend. yeah and have such love and appreciation for you mm-hmm. um and i i keep remembering like as i'm thinking about talking to you in the last week i keep remembering one time when we were like 19 or something and we were driving back from surfing mm-hmm. and you i think we had got some coffee and you turned to me and this is just my memory of it you're like you know what i think surfing is my dharma and i had never heard the word dharma before i didn't know what it was and there was like a a charge to the word when you said it i was like wait like what the fuck is dharma (laughs) (laughs) and i would like had no idea that like our lives would become intertwined with dharma um Mm -hmm. going forward so i just wonder like if you could speak to on some level like what dharma is for you and like what that word even means, you know. Yeah.
1: That is a that is a profound question. Just, I know,
0: let's just fucking start with it, dude. <laughs> love
1: it. I love it. Well, there's there's a lot that I think folks need to be filled in on, you know, in terms of you know before I get into that question, that you and I lived together through our college years, yeah, for a number of years. Also, I think you know, along these lines is Like you felt like um, one of the people that was like Sangha, my first experience of Sangha or a fellow uh, practitioner.
0: Yeah, you were my first Dharma brother or Dharma family. Yeah. You know, and like it grew from there. Like there's a lot of Dharma family now, but it's like you were definitely the first person where I'm like,
1: oh, we're on the path together. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, And I think it was, those were amazing times reflecting back on, you know, being in Sonoma, California, Sonoma County, and um, back in, you know, 2008 to 2000, you know, what was it? Know. 10? No, 2004 to 2008. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was, I think those those times were really, like, politically, it was really interesting because we were in the middle of the Bush era, you mm-hmm. know, in the second term, and I think... Just this environment of looking for something else and knowing, you know, certain things weren't quite working out. And being in, um, you know, Northern California, where it's such a mecca for spirituality and a lot of different traditions. I think Dharma, you know, going back to your question, and I think what I meant at that time was not the traditional not how I would define dharma now
0: yeah and that's like one thing I was kind of hoping for and asking that question right like that meant something to you at 18 19 like because your your aunt was a dharma practitioner right so you had a little bit of of a doorway in early on and then kind of took it your own way but then now you're you know you're wearing like a pin right that's like a dharma pin
2: yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're like professionally trained in dharma now that's great like, what did, it, what did dharma mean to you then when you were 18? And I hear you naming this sort of like, feeling like something was off and there was the possibility of something more and mm-hmm. like kind of wanting to follow that calling.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we were, as is true for any any college student, we were exploring so much and trying to see what was out there and on that spiritual landscape, um, I know, I, I actually remember, I appreciate your honesty of not quite being sure about what Dharma meant, but I, I remember, you know, we would have conversations about Buddhism, about different religions, about philosophy. And, um, I think back then Dharma felt like, um, like a true, um, Kind of like a, a way to access my own heart. Mm. Say. And that's still true now for sure, um, in a in a way, but I think my understanding of what that meant was very relative. You know, it was very based in these experiences that I think um, you know, exemplified in surfing. And I think for some folks who haven't surfed before, you know, it can have this uh <laughs> Culture around it that's very laissez-faire and super mm-hmm. relaxed and like slangy counterculture kind of you know uh they think of uh, fast times at Richmond High with Spicoli. Yeah, the dropout
0: yeah. culture that kind of emerged kind of in the '50s and '60s, where people were kind of just not doing the normal thing when the normal thing was the only thing you were supposed to do.
1: Exactly, um, and now it's kind of this like just weird um it it it, it, it's a weird thing it i think it's it's actually become very materialistic now yeah and you would know much better than i but um every time i go home you know i tend to get in the water and um yeah it just feels very crowded it feels very um like everyone and their mother you know is out and Mm -hmm. trying to be a surfer and um I think that that was kind of true when we were, you know, back in yeah, I mean, yeah, or long ago. yeah. We weren't in the early
0: days when <laughs> there was no <laughs> one in the water.
1: <laughs> but, but I think you know, I'm I'm belaboring this more than I need to. But it's I think surfing really um, had this quality for me, especially in Northern California, of you have these really intense moments of catching a wave standing up and a lot of the time in norcal as as you know now and you know northern northern u.s and yeah. you know, oregon it's like a lot of the time the waves are really big and yeah. it's, you know surfing in you know waves that are six feet plus it's uh it's a different type of surfing you know yeah. you gotta you gotta have some cojones as they say in southern california <laughs> um but it's it was really powerful. I think just, uh, there is that quality of bravery, meaning to be engaged, um, you know, really being challenged and all for this moment that was very impermanent and it's very, you know, you only get one wave for this short period of time, but the feeling of like walking or like flying on water, It's very hard to replicate that experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that experience for me felt very powerful, very spiritual. Um, and it, it like connected me to something beyond, um, chasing what I saw growing up chasing, you know, money, the dream life, just material things. Um, and it felt like I found more meaning in those moments. You know, chasing after an idea of what I needed in my life or what success was.
0: Oh yeah. So like when you're younger in your early 20s in college, Mm -hmm. there was pressure like to to take on the successful path or the kind of the path of making it in a certain way. Yeah. And you were like feeling the challenge there with that, like not knowing, like kind of maybe not wanting to take that on, but not knowing there's other ways to. To engage living,
1: exactly, and um, you know another angle on it is that you and I grew up in Southern California culture, yeah. which some people might not realize that there is a lot of uh, weight put on what car you drive, you know where mm-hmm. you live, you know how you appear, and so um, you know it could be superficial, but I think there's there's some depth to that. When you see through it, and there's there's actually a lot of genuine people in Southern California. I found because of that contrast. Mm. Um, You know, I think of my own family that actually, you know, I'm sure it's similar with your family, where they have generations of there's generations of Southern Californians. Yeah, they didn't just you know come here from the Midwest. You know, all of a sudden, or yeah. So my my a lot of my family. you know, has a lot of history in southern california actually my uh just an odd side note my great grandfather was the one who um owned the has uh, the first Hass avocado tree in mm-hmm. orange county yeah. yeah
0: yeah which is such a big deal right in california culture the avocado and orchards and growing yeah. my my own grandfather too had a fruit stand and really? everyone was like kiddo he still had orchards in his backyard he would outsource them to like sun kiss and stuff but i would run around the sort of like tangerine and orange orchards as a kid oh
2: man
0: yeah so like we, i think we do have like sort of deep california roots in some ways you know deep colonial california roots right like yeah there you go <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: yeah yeah so when you're you know you're describing like sort of surfing holding these qualities of what dharma means to you now right like as you have yeah. studied dharma like what is it to you now to like after how long has it been like 15 years of pretty steady and serious commitment
1: yeah since since 2008 i think was was really when i like, invested in yeah. that on a daily basis i think when we were you know, living together in college at Sonoma State University, I think there was this—you know—practice would happen, but it wasn't so. It wasn't a daily thing, you know. Yeah. And I remember us going to Snow Mountain Zen Center, and um so it was almost like those were the years of dabbling and doing the spiritual shopping. But um, it's yeah, a little I
0: different that- for me because I, I was sitting like twice a day at that point.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let me speak for you. Yeah, yeah. I kind of practice as much.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you practice? I hear you chant in your room like Namyo nam oh, Right. Ho, right. <laughs> I don't.
1: I don't remember doing it daily. Did I do it daily? I don't think so. But you I do it
0: sometimes. So. Yeah. You always had a guilt relationship that you should be doing. Yeah. There is like you would chant when we would drive. You're like, I gotta get my chanting
2: in.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was. I was of purifying all my uh christian guilt in those years Um, yeah
0: yeah working through the like oh man so much shit there with the christian guilt Um, but like you're 22 or something and you graduate from sonoma state and then you move to um shambhala mountain center right and that's when serious started practice started getting serious for you
1: yeah and um there's there's a really wonderful teacher uh galen ferguson from who Teaches at Naropa University. He's been there for a number of decades. Fantastic teacher. Um, you know, uh, I would say one of the one of the really um, great American Buddhists. Hmm. Um, you know, he's written a few books called, I believe, it's Natural Wakefulness. Um, he's African American and um, just a really solid practitioner, someone who has spent a lot of time on the cushion, you can just feel it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he gave a talk on enlightened society on Martin Luther King day back in 2008. And Mm. I was at the Berkeley Shambhala center and it, it was just kind of like, I wasn't really into Shambhala that much. You know, I was, I was intrigued, but I think hearing that talk, you know, and where, where he talked about the spiritual, and the secular are not separate. You know, mm. Actually, we're, we're creating an enlightened society. And I think that um, just that intention or aspiration of enlightened society really rang true for me. And um, I think we all feel that yeah. yearning to yeah. see a society that's healthy and that's going well enough but it, it felt like a rare thing to hear those words together, enlighten society. And I think for me, it just felt like, oh, this is this is it. I'm willing to make a really big leap and move to Colorado and try and work at Shambhala Mountain Center. And so I did that summer of 2008.
0: I'm so appreciative of what you're saying and just want to make a little space for Shambhala. Like if you could just say a little of what Shambhala is. Yeah which I know you could say a lot of what Shambhala is because Shambhala has quite a history, but if you were to give sort of a little bit of a brief overview.
1: Yeah, I would say it's, I think it's important to understand words, especially foreign words and and what they translate Mm -hmm. to. And Shambhala, um, you know, it can feel like a brand. You know, yeah, it's just,
0: sometimes called like corporate buddhism in america right like yeah it's a, exactly it's a large organization with centers all over the world and has a really robust teaching schedule and sort of yeah. like templates like you know level ones level twos level threes
1: Great yeah. sequential
0: yeah yeah so and there's like people all over the world that um know of shambhala yes on some level and but for you the word itself has a, a power to it
1: yeah and i think um understanding right now it's really pertinent is understanding the difference between a lineage Mm
2: -hmm.
1: organization Mm -hmm. you know and and, yeah yeah, the brand of shambhala i can just talk about you know it's history and and kind of what you talk
0: i don't give a fuck uh, about the brand (laughs) dude what's the lineage talk about the lineage
1: (laughs) (laughs) well if it's almost like if we want to talk lineage, we have to understand the meaning, you know, it's like we can, the branding is just the words, you yeah. know, and the, the stats of how many people are involved or how many programs we offer. Well, what's the that.
0: meaning, man? What's the meaning of lineage and Shambhala it's... to you? If you were just to, to drop down into that heart and come back with a little, a little bit what you got. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, i'm glad you asked (laughs) um so shambhala can be amongst other um translations can be translated as origin of delight oh shit wait
0: wait let's just hang out the origin of delight (laughs) that's fucking amazing i didn't know that I, i feel like i know a little bit about shambhala for an outsider and like I'm so happy to know that origin of delight.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it and it's, I think there's, um, there's so much more to that, that can be, you know, really broadened out. Like if we were to say, what does that look like? Like, yeah. okay, I, th- those are just words, but what does, give me a symbol, you know, that would be uh, what we call the great Eastern sun. Hmm. Which so, you
0: see in a lot of Shambhala centers, right? The sort of beautiful blue bottom with this orange sun and red rays coming out of it sort of that's just my yeah. memory of the image i don't know if that's even accurate
1: there, there, there are some that that was one iteration of it there were some other oh, we're,
0: we're getting into the branding side that there's yeah. iterations of the branding. eastern <laughs> sun
1: <laughs> <laughs> which has to happen oh, you know totally yeah and and this is where i think um my understand or going back to dharma where we can understand truth dharma to be translated as truth mm-hmm. there's the outer and then there's an inner
2: mm-hmm. you know in
1: this there's this quality of like if we want to um be on a, a spiritual path um we have to acknowledge that there's this secular world that we have to take care of in our mm-hmm. life. but then what is the meaning behind how we engage with our life and mm-hmm. i think that that's where this just the words enlightened society really struck me because it felt like okay we have the spiritual enlightenment and what does that even mean that that almost feels like a koan Mm -hmm. you know like how to understand enlightenment is something to contemplate
0: it's such a charged word right enlightenment like you you know and within a buddhist circle to say enlightenment means one thing but then within i'm a zen student and you're kind of in a lineage of tibetan buddhism so when we say enlightenment it means something else and then if you look like outside the world in the spiritual wider world enlightenment means something else so it's a pretty like uh it's got a lot of meanings that word right
1: exactly yeah. a lot of different uh angles mm-hmm. on it uh and then you have society and i think society is a, actually a if not just as important of a word to contemplate the meaning of that. I believe we all are, um, contemplating what society means and what it means to be in society right now, especially with as much upheaval and chaos and challenge that we're facing right now. So it's.
0: Yeah. It's such a wonderful, delightful kind of opportunity right now on some levels. Mm-hmm. that like society is this thing we usually swim in. You know what I mean? We're just yes. like sort of in it. Exactly. And then we and we still are on some levels, but it's we've been removed from it in some ways, right? Like some of the things we define as society have been taken away from us, or we've mm-hmm. been asked to stop depending on who follows what rules. And I think when that happens, like you're able to reflect on something, right? When you're not in it so much. So we're now like able to look at like, wait, what the fuck, what is society? <laughs> And like, and is it coming back? Is it going to come back? Yeah. Like, is this society
1: now? Or is there like
0: another one that's coming back?
1: <laughs> yeah. It's almost like, um, you know, it reminds me of surfing. Um, yeah. You know, when that, when you start seeing the yachts and this happened a bunch, you know, surfing in, in LA and in Southern California, you'd see these yachts or just these boats out, out in the distance. And then you would notice this brown film kind of coming in, mm. and like you're, you're swimming in literal shit. Oh god, <laughs> there's just you start being like, what the hell? Like, we need to take care of our oceans. Like, we need to yeah, yeah. Need to preserve this water that is so precious. And I think we're we're in this right now. We have politics. We have, you know, um, certain institutions that are actually causing a lot of harm and pollution. Like mm-hmm. literal environmental pollution, but I think also um pollution yes. to our own sense of humanity yeah. that we're starting to smell it and it's like, oh, this is gross you know we need to start cleaning this up and caring for our our water or you could say in in this case in our life force or our humanity
0: mm-hmm. kind of interior water and exterior water like mm-hmm. the the substance of our lives right the the culture we create, but also like what's inside of us and what happens when we take in our culture and how it impacts our sort of inner living water.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And there's, how do, how could we ever separate from that culture? How is that possible? I think there is some of this, uh, fantasy playing out, especially with, uh, social media and a lot of technology is that people can feel this sense of, oh, I'm separate from, I can do, I can find my crew, I can do my own thing. I don't have to be so influenced by the other. But actually, you know, I think, um, you know, case in point, like Donald Trump was very much uh, a part of a reaction to the liberal uh, Mm -hmm. side of politics. You know, you even look there was a moment there was a moment in time we can point at and say that was when Donald Trump decided to run for presidency. And I don't know if you've seen this, but watch, I think you can find it on YouTube of Obama insulting Donald oh, Trump. Oh, when
0: he's at the, the press conference meeting or whatever. I forgot that. Uh, it like
1: dinner for press back in yeah. 2011.
0: And he's like, you'll never be president, Trump.
1: <laughs> and Trump's oh, like, God. you'll fucking see. You'll yeah, exactly. see. and so it's it's also it's like we're we're watching certain principles that i think as practitioners or or buddhists um you know regardless of whether one is zen or theravadin or um or shamanian um karma you know it's 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 there and it's like one word you know one insult can lead to a whole series of events Mm -hmm. that if that didn't happen or if something else happened, like if there was a level of kindness or even if Trump had a sense of humor, you know, <laughs> like, like, maybe he wouldn't have gotten into this whole mess. <laughs> no. Yeah,
0: And like, it, it's interesting what you're talking about to me because like this one word, right? Or this one phrase, like one joke from Obama is thought to spur on the president, like Trump becoming a president. There's probably yeah. more layers there, but for yeah. you too, like one phrase enlightened society yes and and from a presence right you heard it from a teacher that held something that you saw right you're like oh he he has something i don't know quite what it is and then this notion of enlightened society seemed like it hooked you in a way almost not to be president right but to give some of your commitment to uh like a calling to want to bring forth sort of enlightened society through the actions of your life
1: Mm -hmm yeah it's beautiful it's beautifully well said i think that that's yeah yeah i feel a sense of just uh so grateful you know because um i think without that teaching without that moment of Mm -hmm. galen ferguson in on martin luther king day in Berkeley
0: yeah which is a special center right Berkeley a lot of history there.
1: a lot of history there a lot of like in terms of the world of Buddhism a lot of magic happened there you know Mm -hmm. especially for Buddhism in California um in the United States it's just amazing to me it's like these moments in time they're so specific and they're so like you it's that whole idea like you had to be there um I think we all have that in our lives where you can't plan on it. It just happens and it's it's almost by accident, but it's kind of like that accident can change the whole direction of your life. And I, if I were to point at something, you know that was definitely the, the moment where I changed. And you know going back to what you referred to before in terms of next steps was going to Schumala Mountain Center, which is you know another very powerful place. Um, where a lot of retreats have happened since the 80s um, in, you know, in the context of Tibetan Buddhism, but also Shambhala. And also, you know, it's really been a powerful center and and host for a lot of spiritual traditions, you know, in the West. um, That that's the first day I got there. I met my wife.
0: Oh, you met Betsy that first day.
1: First day. She was the first person I met. Granted, I didn't like propose to her the next day. No, but... no You didn't know
0: that Betsy was gonna be your your wife at that day, yeah. but you met her yeah. there because she was Absolutely. working there too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. She she was so friendly, so kind. And I just remember being very, you know, being bearded and kind of disheveled and you know, in my sandals and the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. It's in the northern Rockies.
0: Um, You were an aspiring dirtbag, right?
1: I was a (laughs) dirtbag. Yeah. (laughs) Super into climbing. I mean, the surf in Colorado sucks. So I wasn't surfing there, but (laughs) um, yeah, it was. But that moment, you know, led to so many other moments where I saw my first dead body Hmm. uh, a few months after arriving at Shemal Mountain Center. And that was a very profound experience for me. you know, and that was during a ceremony of a cremation, uh, outdoor cremation that would happen, you know, in in Buddhist uh, ceremonies for the dead. And, um, you know, and then there was also meeting my current teacher, or or you could say guru, um, which might be a little bit, that word is a little overused, I think, and misunderstood in our in our contemplative society, but um but,
0: but you met Rinpoche at that point.
1: Um, yeah, Sakya Mipam Rinpoche uh, yeah. came a few. He was actually on the land when I arrived, uh, but he came um, back a few months later uh, and led a retreat. And during that time, I got to have a few interactions.
0: Yeah, I actually so, want to rewind a little bit, if that's okay. Yeah. Just from yes. what you were saying, and then I think you're laying the ground here for a lot of future threads we can touch on around oh, yeah. kind of retreats and guru and all these things and committing to enlightened society and kind of where that's brought your life today where you're still living in a meditation center in uh vermont right
1: <laughs> the northeast kingdom yeah. Vermont.
0: <laughs> yeah like i just loved hearing kind of that moment that you shared around enlightened society because i mean we know each other and i've never heard that moment and it's just such a beautiful moment and then it made me think of uh, uh, my own similar moment like c- kind of around the time we were living together but a little before yeah um I had started meditating because I just felt like it was what I was supposed to do and then I already had gone on a meditation retreat within like a month of starting meditating yeah. and and I was living alone what, what, and what was that what year was this this was probably like 2005 or 6 okay yeah So I was living alone, not really alone, but like with people I didn't know and just doing my own thing in the summer after having done a retreat, sitting every day and wanting to really understand what it meant to be alone because I'd been with people for so often. So I really wasn't interacting that much with folks. Like I would talk to my parents, but most of my friends were back home in San Diego, just like partying. And I was just like, you know, meditating every day, working as a gardener and like eating a macrobiotic diet and like reading about Buddhism. I was like, all I was really doing and then I had like a a pretty profound moment like a synchronicity you know in the Jungian tradition they talk about synchronicities Mm -hmm. where like something I had read in a book that morning the person that I did landscaping for said the exact same thing back to me
1: whoa
0: and it you know and it was less the thing she said right I don't even remember what it was but it was just that moment of like wait what the fuck like (laughs) like what the fuck like what is this and I had been reading (laughs) starting to read about spirituality and I'm like Maybe they're right. Like maybe the like life is alive, and life is communicating to me. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I had that thought, like I yep. felt like I drove through a membrane, you know, yep. like I was like I drove into the membrane of like the living universe that like yep. is like engaged in this process, and it's like really mysterious. And I'm not a very good translator of the universe, but I try. And <laughs> <laughs> then like that night, I like I had like a special moment in the redwood forest, and then I like went home. And I was like sitting in front of a mirror and I was like, oh, I, I guess I, I'm supposed to get like the right thing to do is get enlightened. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? The commitment, like Shanti deva talks about it, like this moment where you're just like, I'm going to commit to this. Like, yeah. this is what I'm going to do with my life. Exactly. But, but for me, it wasn't enlightened society. It was like for the earth. Wow. Like it just, I just had this sense. And I even said the prayer, right? I was looking in the mirror, like, I'll do this for the earth. Wow. I'll do this for the earth so i just appreciate for you like there's society right like culture and for me it's like the trees and us like we're a part of it but it's like yes. it's like for the for fucking gaia you know
1: yeah. <laughs> it's it's amazing to hear from you around that piece of i think having that insight that you know life is alive like you know and it's it's sad that we have to go through a lot just to have that simple obvious it's so obvious once you go through that membrane and i think that's beautifully well said it's like you enter into this this world that actually is no different than what you've been living in but it's a different understanding it's a different angle it's like oh there's there's someone out there to talk to in a way you know but yeah. it's not, it's not a thing and you're not a thing and I, I i mean that's the path you know and it's 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 our willingness to listen and be open and yeah it's those moments that we have to almost like keep coming back to because we it's it's humbling to be on a yeah. path right
0: yeah and no, i have even yeah that was a word in my head too when you were talking to like like you're in communication or engagement with something right and like to call yeah. it a thing is not doing justice to it but it's hard to put a word on it the is. enormity of life yeah. like um and like how fucking small we are yeah like you just got to be humble right like what the fuck yep. like life is organizing my life to this such a degree and then yours and then everyone else's and like what the fuck like i'm really tiny i don't understand this
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's why uh buddhism has something to say and is going to continue to be relevant until everyone's enlightened but it's it's saying that they're who it's asking that question of like who is the one experiencing this life. like who who is the one like suffering? who is the one that is having this insight? who is it exactly? like where are they? you know and 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 that um, that questioning or that willingness to look at the nature of who we are as humans and and as you were pointing out the you know how humbling it is to be human, Um, especially
0: in today's day and age um yeah i love what you're saying right there there's something in this looking inside right and i imagine when you're in the mountain center like it's turning on right like this the arrow is turning towards the self and you're like really starting to look and then from what i understand of shambhala Mm
2: -hmm.
0: just this really basic thing that's meant a lot to me on my own path like not being a shambhala light what what is a shambhala Shambhala? Shambhala, (laughs) shambhalian um like basic goodness,
2: mm, yeah. And like
0: when you really look close and see it, it's actually, um, it's
1: it's good. <laughs> basically, yeah. It's like
0: basically <laughs> good, you know.
1: Basically, it's pretty good. <laughs> you gotta like go through a lot
0: of shit to see that, like you know, there's a lot of other layers, but like at this core, like you know what's in life. Like we're talking about this membrane of life helping us. Is also like inside, right? Like it's it's right in here helping me too like it is me this goodness that like permeates kind of everything is that an okay way of holding basic goodness I've never had a formal teaching on it or anything I've just heard the phrase and I'm like I fucking love that
1: (laughs) no I I think you (laughs) I think you very quickly like just like slide right into the meaning of that um you know that that term I think, you know, historically, there's been such a relationship with Zen and Shambhala and- Mm -hmm. Yeah, with uh,
0: Suzuki Roshi and kind of Trumpa's little love affair, not sexual, just just spiritual love affair. It
1: was a very profound connection for for a number of years. We actually had uh, Suzuki Roshi on our shrines, which is kind of a big deal. Our shrines are really, (laughs) really important to us. And like who's up there, like you'll have our lineage holders Chogum Trumper Rinpoche and then Sakya Mipam Um, But while Trumper Rinpoche was still alive, Suzuki Roshi was up there and Trumper Rinpoche's teachers were up there. So that that's kind of like, this is who we're looking to, to guide us. And mm-hmm. so I think that, um, you know, there's such, there's a few great books out there just to put a plug. Um, Skull Cup Teacup talks about the, the relationship between Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism, really powerful teachings by uh, Trumper Mbse. But it's, um, yeah, I think basic goodness, uh, it's again, it's those, we have an outer side of it, but then the the inner, and that's honestly, that's something that I contemplate on a daily basis you know, and it's, it's really like the Koan principle of coming back to it and not really like there is an exertion to really, uh, understand it, but it's almost like this surrender to the process of embodying it Mm. and living it, you know, as, as something that is a constant reminder in one's life. And you could say that that's what makes you one, a practitioner, is especially a Shambhala practitioner is someone who comes back to that principle constantly
0: of basic goodness
1: basic goodness
0: And, and like I imagine that's really connected to enlightened society in a way and I'm wondering for you like what you see how you see basic goodness like how you recognize it in yourself and in the world and if you could just kind of hang out with it for a little while as someone that sat with it as a koan and knowing that what you're sharing is a work in progress and not a definitive answer but oh just yeah where, where you're at with it kind of <laughs> even just today as we're talking
1: <laughs> yeah yeah what's uh, snowing in vermont right now
0: oh did you just look it up, up the snow right now there yeah
1: I'm, I'm, I'm watching it snow
0: oh that's beautiful
1: and Yeah, it's winter time. There's this quality of like being in, enveloped and the brisk mm-hmm. biting cold. Yeah, Texas knows what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> you know, in this level of like things don't things are quiet. You know, you go outside and we have a few chickadees that you know we're still feeding and they're amazing Mm -hmm. to me but you just go outside and it's just quiet and no one is telling vermont to be in winter no one is going around you know making sure that oh this place has this much snow like this field has that much snow like it just happens and i think that um on an outer level, our world is just basically good. It's just, mm-hmm. it is what it is. There doesn't need to be an explanation. There doesn't need to be a, um, a next, okay, this is why it matters. You mm-hmm. know, it, it just is. And it's out of appreciation um, of our world that we can connect with it. And on the flip side, know in terms of being inner um we can sit and be with ourselves and taste and feel and smell and hear and see basic goodness in a way that's not um it's not contrived like we're not we're not trying to Bring our experience to somewhere else. We're actually just slowing down enough to feel what we feel. And, you know, basic goodness is the finger pointing to the moon. It's telling us something about the nature of who we are as humans. Um, and each one of us is going to have a very intimate and powerful relationship with that. And it's not to say that um, I think our tradition of Shambhala Buddhism, or um, the the lineage of that is, we're not saying that, oh, we're the only ones who have it because we coined the term. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, we're actually looking at this as there are many traditions, many different, historically, countless numbers of humans that have touched in with this principle. And there's different words for it, for sure. But I think this is why lineage matters is we have a, um, a common, you know, language. We have a common, we have places, we have groups of people, we have teachings, practices, practices, we have teachers and lineage holders and, um, their successors, uh, that are going to, um, can propagate these teachings that allow us very quick access to that and yeah yeah those sort of
0: those glimpses or those pointing outs or those sustained efforts that allow access to the recognition of basic goodness
1: exactly so and i
0: you, have i have a question here man and i, I don't think i'm going to get it out very well but i'm going to try to be succinct yeah. so let me know if like you can feel the question you know yes um so we're both therapists right yes we are and so I've, I've in the past i've taught graduate school counseling and i kind of will That's sometimes talk a lot of shit on freud because yeah. freud builds in and playfully Freud's great did a lot of good things um but he builds in this assumption of basic wrongness
2: mm-hmm.
0: that there's something inherently wrong with us
2: mm-hmm.
0: and like christian tradition can point to that too mm-hmm. and we can look out at the world and we can maybe feel and see that like what if we're basically good why is this the manifest reality we're living in and like and then also for myself like as a therapist and just looking at the world like it seems people are really scared of themselves like people will have music playing all the time or a tv on and the thought of silence and being with themselves scares them Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and like the period when someone goes to sleep right is often the most difficult for someone yeah. because that moment where there's no more input from the world around and they just have to be with themselves and like even for myself right I don't want to just point the finger outward like yeah there are definite days and they happen frequently where like I don't feel comfortable in myself
2: mm-hmm.
0: like I feel like there's something wrong and it's this very like basic pre-verbal core thing
2: mm-hmm. but
0: if I sit right it falls away like it falls away pretty quickly and I'm really grateful for that like I think that's the benefit of sitting over a long time is just like I sit down and like I have no memory of thinking there was something wrong with me (laughs) like it's just gone and I wonder if you could just speak to like the complexity and layers here both around the world that we see and like if it is basically good what the fuck right I mean we're, (laughs) we're already talking about Trump in here yep and then also this sort of like sense of being afraid of what's inside of us But there's something inside of us we don't want to see and if it is basically good why are we turning away and like please take that wherever you want i said a lot there and just yeah
1: it's a great it's a great question you're you're pointing to um really important principle that I, i'm i'm Certain, you know, is also part of the Zen tradition of uh, duality and non-duality.
0: Yeah, like relative, Except, absolute, or just yeah, different exactly. ways. Relative yeah, relative and
1: absolute. Like what's, <laughs> that's that's the conundrum, you know? And, and that's, I think the, the quick answer is there is no conceptual answer. Concept will not resolve mm. this issue. So that's where practice and personal experience is placed at a very high um, high value compared to a conceptual explanation. Granted, we use concepts to kind of get ourselves closer to understanding the non-conceptual. Um, and I, you know, that's that's a way of talking about it before getting into
0: Yeah, there's like something there for me that like the question itself relies on a dependence on conceptual awareness. Like if exactly. you're asked, like if you're asking that question, you like you might need to have a breakthrough experience in order to to hold that question differently. Is that sort of what you're pointing to in some way?
1: Exactly, and it, and that's to contextualize it. But that's not to say that we shouldn't ask the question. Actually, asking the question is really important. And being dualistic happens. It's that's why we're here. <laughs> you know, that's what samsara is. And and some people don't know that term. But uh, samsara, you can easily define and easily see in your world as this cycle of suffering that we tend to always come back to, no matter what we do or try. There, there's some level of like, it's just not quite right. Yeah. You know, and in the, in the why, and then we start asking the questions. So it's a beautiful process of, of waking up, um, that we have to recognize, you know, in a Shambhala tradition, we have to recognize that both liberation and confusion are happening at the same time. Mm. It's not a, you get one or the other. It's like you resolve confusion and then liberation rises. It's like they're happening at the same time.
2: Hmm.
1: The confidence with which we hold that reality and of just being human and in our base of goodness is being a warrior, you know, because of the bravery necessary to face that truth. There has to be, uh, some sense of le- leaning into a challenge of that, and it's a very existential challenge.
0: Say like, more about the challenge. Like, what is the challenge one leans into? when one embraces good, basic goodness.
1: It's it's the temptation to, as you were very eloquently describing, and I've I've experienced this too as a therapist of seeing, of, and as a person. You know of just wanting to go to sleep just wanting to not not look you know just i just want to have my steak and wine and mm. you know a good meal and a good you know netflix and a loving wife and i want a nice house i want you know it's just this i want i want that um we'll that just yes those... sorry what were you, Oh, that
0: there's like the the confusion's always gonna be there and there's always a temptation to drift into it and to want to avoid the seeing through of
1: it. Yeah.
0: Because I, I was just trying to catch what you were saying there. That may not have been representative.
1: It's, it's hard to talk about, you know, but it, ultimately we can look at it as like, we have a choice to be a warrior about this, dualistic non-dualistic conundrum mm-hmm. or we can be cowardly and mm-hmm. that cowardness i don't think we need to necessarily see it as in a pejorative way or it's lesser than we can actually acknowledge like this is this is part of who we are it's like we tend to go towards fear and that we actually need to honor and respect that um that experience is actually being held within the principle of basic goodness. And that we also have the possibility of being warrior, a warrior or a coward, and sometimes a little bit of both at any moment, you know. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah, it's a very um yeah, you know, I think people want it to be either or, and I think we're perpetually in that uh conundrum of wanting it to be black and white wanting there to be a good and evil and it's just i think we all know this deep down it's not quite that
0: yeah thank you man yeah so like is enlightened society in a way kind of based on people being able to move beyond conceptual awareness and build sort of civilization or structure from that? Like what, what like, cause we were just sort of talking about the individual there, right? Around yep. basic goodness, like then how does that translate into sort of shifting the expression of our culture right now that seems more rooted in this asleepness or cowardliness and kind of the Shambhala phrase?
1: Yeah. I think, um, you know, Sakya Mipan Rinpoche wrote a book called The Shambhala Principle that really, oh my gosh, goes through so many different aspects of society and how implementing you know some of these principles into our, our society, how it could you know influence it in a very positive way. And I, I think there's there's tangible elements to actually creating enlightened society, but ultimately um we have to acknowledge that this is about a very personal question of how do how much do I value myself? How much do I value my humanity? Hmm. Um, and if we don't go there as individuals, it's very difficult to do it on a systemic level. Um, but you could say, if you get a group of warriors together, there's very little that's gonna hold you you back from accomplishing your intentions and your goals. Um, so I think essentially you, we just need enough people practicing. We need enough people asking that question and seeing for themselves their own value. And I don't think they even need to be, you know, Shambhalian and have having done the levels, although ha- that, that definitely helps and you know i'm very dedicated to continuing on those teachings and supporting it in any way but um the on the realistic bigger scale is it's really the simple question of am i basically good and enough people asking that question and going down that that path yeah cool
0: i think it's want to make <laughs> what do some- you think?
1: What do, what do you think enlightened society would look like Oh, that, um, and how to get there? Enlightened
0: society, what it looks like and how to get there. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the begs the question, are we already there?
1: Yeah, there right, you go. Like, like there's sort of a non-dualistic <laughs> framework
0: to, to come from, right? Like who yeah. are we to think that this isn't enlightened society playing out right now? Um, which I kind of lean towards that a little bit, you know, like uh oh, yeah. That like best not me me define this as not enlightened. <laughs> like, yeah. like, who am I to say that? <laughs> that like life is doing it wrong, yeah. Uh, but on another level, right? Like it's very painful to look at the world and it hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, and like for me in society, I think based on what we were talking about earlier, right, our different sort of doorways in is um like uh recognizing that the the earth is the one that is shaping our experience Mm. not just like in this ecological resource way but like that the earth is a living presence that is trying to help us to be part of the family of life yeah and until we embrace that on some level that like we are part of earth and that like we have a role on earth like we're here for a reason like i read this book recently the like the about the complex nature of viruses
2: Mm. and like
0: this guy gave an example i'm not a scientist i don't know how accurate this is but he gave this example of like a new tribe of primates moved into an area Yeah. so the a virus transformed i think it was like a hepatitis virus transformed to basically take out the primates that were coming in to take over the area and then once they were sort of brought down enough, where they were no longer a threat, the virus transformed back into the more benign hepatitis. Which he uses is like, this guy uses as an example of like the complex nature of viruses and managing the environmental sphere. Yeah. And when I when I read that, right, if it's true or not, I just had this like inner sense of like, oh, like we're still here for a reason. Yeah. Like we would get wiped out if we weren't here for a reason. So like, what the fuck is our reason? <laughs> <laughs> like we really have to remember what our reason is yeah and it's ours only we know it because we're like the humans so yeah. we have to, like and each individual right has to look inside like why do I live
2: yeah
0: what's my what's my dharma right what's my offering yeah. what's the thing in me that is part of the web of life and then I think as a whole we need to like what is our role like what yeah. are we actually doing here and I think those questions might like move us in an arc where like, uh, it's a little happier, a little more joyous, you know, (laughs) a little little less shitty,
2: hopefully. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think you, you talk about it beautifully, you know, in, in a way where we have a purpose here and that, you know, we're so interconnected with the earth. Yeah. That it's, yeah. Thinking of it as something separate from us is part of the issue. that we're it's it's like owning our um uh inseparability like how could there be an earth separate from humanity like it's just not fathomable
0: or an enlightened society separate from me yeah separate from you
1: yeah yeah and really what is enlightenment you know we come come back to that like what does that exactly mean and I think really what it means is in a certain way we're we're removing the obstacles so it's removing obstacles and also bringing out and enriching uh our inherent qualities
0: and you're touching on bodhicitta here a bit right
1: a little bit it it actually uh goes to um it's a translation of uh, enlightenment or a Senge, or oh, wow. uh, I'm sorry, uh, Buddha um, in Tibetan.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: So Senge means, I think Sen is like obstacles, or you could say in this case, removing, and then gay is like to make bigger or to like enrich.
0: Yeah. And like, I think right now, like in a way, you're naming practice, right? Like, like yeah, but
1: we, could, we could take it to the scale of society you know I think you're well I, I,
0: I think more I wanted to touch on like practice and the role that yeah. practice has in sort of helping us to see our yeah. basic goodness live our basic goodness and like maybe okay. if you could even if we could go back a moment to like the mountain center mm-hmm. and the intensification of practice and like
2: oh, what, yeah. pr-
0: what practice has been through you over the last decade or so right which I imagine there's arcs and a lot that goes on there and like if you could just tell a little bit of a story of your own practice life and what you see practice being you know just for yourself and maybe for others as someone that teaches at times yeah
1: yeah yeah. Uh, I would say one common thread that has been true you know is um shamatha in uh, Sanskrit, it means peaceful abiding. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a, an element of uh, mindfulness. You know, being very—it's which essentially is the main principle of any meditation practice. You know, in Buddhism, is our mind's ability to stay on an object. Mm-hmm. It's like really, really straightforward, simple. But it what we're doing is we're actually relating with our mind by do through placing it on an object and being very deliberate about it. And could you
0: could you give a few objects that are often in practice for people that don't aren't in the yeah. lingo of object? Because yeah. when, when we say object, we're like, oh yeah, objects. Like, objects. like what the yeah. fuck are you talking about? Objects.
1: <laughs> you know, um, so traditionally you can use. Any objects, especially ones of veneration, um, like a statue of a Buddha, for example. Um, but in this case, we use our breath, and um, you know, in the Shambhala tradition, our breath is a really foundational uh, object of meditation. But then, you know, as we progress, as I progress along my path, you know, in the Shambhala tradition, that that object. Um, has transformed a little bit you know you brought up bodhicitta or or awakened heart and that that could be uh that object in that case of cultivating bodhicitta or compassion like great compassion the object becomes another person Mm -hmm. and you're sending them you know in the practice of tonglen you're sending them compassion good fortune happiness and you're taking in their suffering
0: And that's a turn right that like there's a lot of spiritual traditions that send love right prayers and yes metta practice right like a loving kindness practice but the tibetan buddhas they take in the darkness they like actually suck it into their bodies (laughs) like that seems like
1: a whole other level of gnarliness (laughs) yeah you you would think that oh it doesn't feel gross or isn't that um you know uh kind of like dark yeah like
0: are you wait you want to like take in the darkness of the world into your body like i thought we we were supposed to be like loving light bodies where we're pure and nothing touches us
1: like what do you mean that's where the the non-dualism comes from is like actually it makes it even more powerful because what you're sending out is is this brilliant light and it's exactly what you want you're offering that and i think you end up feeling like in this practice you feel this level of like bottomless black hole of brilliant light or you maybe it'd be better to use a a bright brilliant sun that you can take in Hmm. anything and it and it just sends out light you know there's
0: a fearlessness and a sort of uh like an invincibility not in the normal sense but like you the what you take in isn't gonna hurt you because you're something else
1: yeah because like, you're so you're you're offering that love and yeah. that love is un um undeniable and un uh undimmable yeah you know it's <laughs> so it's that that's still shamata. You know that still holds that principle of our mind being placed on an object. It's you know obviously a little bit more complicated. Yeah, there's a Um,
0: visualization element, right? Like some somatic element and like some intention,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. intention going on. And then, um, then we get into visualization practices, and that object becomes um, an embodied quality. Uh, that is alive and that we treat with that kind of veneration and respect of an actual entity or or deity um, Mm -hmm. and we're
0: entering the sort of tantric vajrayana landscape now right like a lot of buddhism in the west at least is oriented around these first two principles right like samatha mindfulness and even compassion but what you're doing now is transitioning to something else you know, in my understanding of sort of the Buddhist landscape, yes. of this sort of like, you know, deity practice, right? But And if you could like speak more about like the Vajrayana and Tantra and these sort of practices of relating to divine qualities that are personified by a living essence that you're in relationship to. Mm-hmm. Is that, I don't I don't know Vajra that well. I'm just no, you, uh, <laughs> like, I've never practiced it. So I don't you're know. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is just me pretending to be a good question answer. That's all. <laughs> that was great, brandy um, Yeah, like the Vajra, man. Like what, like at some point in your own practice, you stepped into that, right? There's a certain amount of training that goes in until you're and the mm-hmm. Tibetan lineages initiated into these practices.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's, you know, we start with something very simple like the breath. And then you know cultivate Bodhicitta and that big heart. And then we we uh you know go it doesn't end there, but we we start working with deity and visualization practices. Um and, and
0: what are some of the common deities that people would work with in Shambhala? Like so you could say um
1: deities.
0: Yeah,
1: this is this gets all funky a bit, right? Um, I'm, I'm, I, I hear you try
0: to do a dance with your words. Yep. <laughs>
1: the, the reason why you're hearing the dance happen is it's it's a little tricky because not all of our community is Vajrayana practitioners. Although yeah. we have that culture, there's still some level of uh, secrecy and protection from. Uh, those practices. Although we do offer visualization practices, you know, here on every Tuesday night, you know, we Mm -hmm. have um, a visualization of white Tara, who is a female Buddha, and she embodies principles of fearlessness, protection from fear, um, safety while traveling, also fertility, um, pacification. So like quelling, Mm -hmm. um, a level of distraughtness or being upset. Um, so she, she embodies this, uh, this genuine caring compassion and she has eyes in her, in her hands and a third eye, and she has eyes on the soles of her feet. And you can kind of be like, wait, what's up with that? What's up with all the eyes, but everything that you're visualizing, visualizing has a meaning behind it. And so those eyes means that she sees suffering uh, from every direction, you know, and she's open to it. And she's also very sensitive to it. So you could imagine like having eyes on your hands, you'd be very careful about how you used Mm -hmm. your hands, how you moved in the world. So it's kind of this like, um, there's some like very relatable piece to it too. Um and with that practice and developing that relationship, we're still with Shamta, we're still being precise about seeing a certain color, a certain form, a female form. Yeah, the,
0: the visualizations are very specific at times, right? Mm-hmm. That like you're given an image to recreate in your mind, and there's that yeah. shamata mindfulness concentrative yeah. point of holding that image.
1: Yeah, yeah and there is a level of secrecy with it because it's very easy to, from a dualistic point of view, start misunderstanding what's happening um, and what you're doing. And yeah. to make it in, 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 in the principle of emptiness that you're cultivating actually in the Mahayana or the larger vehicle, which is associated with the practice of Bodhicitta or Tonglen, we're cult- we need to have a foundation of understanding, um, Actually, it starts before that practice, but understanding emptiness that is based on our understanding of egolessness, that the first problem that we ever really encountered is this immovable belief in a self. So through our meditation practice, we're working with that. Then we build into understanding emptiness, which is seeing that the nature of everything is impermanent that it all has a beginning middle and end there's nothing that's permanent therefore when we move to visualization practice we're not we're we're having that sense of it's really there like she's really there i have a relationship with waitara but it's not a a um a thing you know it's not like she's solid she's made out of light and to understand that principle we have to be very uh I guess more flexible and less solid believing that we are actually here.
0: Yeah. But I love this story from Trump I heard once. Um, Yeah. Drala, is that the term for the like the protectors that you call in?
1: A little bit different than protectors. That there's very specific, but Drala, that, that means above the enemy.
0: Okay, like, and you can like do the stick in the ground. What's that one where you put the stick in the ground and then, you know, that ceremony?
1: Oh, but <laughs> uh, the, are you talking about the smoke offering, the Lossoms? Oh,
0: no, never mind. Anyway, so so, so this was...
1: are talking about him finding water.
0: No, no, no. Let me go back. Let me go back. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I lost it there. I'm not going to give the details. I don't know the details that well, but it's a story that means a lot to me. Oh, you know, Western dude goes up to, to Trump array and... He, it wasn't deities, but let's say it was deities. He's like, what's the deal with all the deities? Like, why are we worshiping deities? Like nothing's, everything's empty. Like, what the fuck, yeah. you know? And he, all Trump says to him is like, they're just as real as you are. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which for a lot of people would be like, oh, that's so weird. You know, yeah, a, like a trippy, you know, weird, like, yeah, just, yeah, they must be dropping acid or something. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I
0: feel that captures what you're saying there that like, the, you know, the, the ego is not a solid thing. The, the deity is not necessarily a solid thing, but th- yeah. they're also expressing themselves and very a part of the dynamic quality of life.
1: Yeah, and, and we have to prepare a lot to <laughs> A lot to, of to relate to there. the deity,
0: like to, you need to prepare your body-mind to be able to be in relationship in a way.
1: Yeah, and really it it, it is not possible from our perspective, you know, yeah. from my humble perspective, it is not possible to have a relationship with a deity without a relationship with a guru. Hmm. It's just you know, you can relate to deities, and we have people relate to deities. But that's within the context of other practitioners that have a relationship with a guru. But it's that that principle is really important in order to be able to relate with um, these entities that are embodying awakement.
0: So the guru has a vital function in having a participatory relationship with these deities. Like, what what is? like what is the guru relationship for you? You know, you or Shambhala and like, how is that connected to deity practice or tantric practice?
1: That's a great question. It's, so this is where we could spend hours. Oh yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just sk- skim the yeah. Surface, right? skimming, skimming the surface, right? Skimming the surface.
1: Well, that's hopefully a with
0: hopefully with a little bit of depth though on the surface. <laughs>
1: yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> I'll try and give it to you straight as, as much as I can granted a lot of this is supposed to be you know secret and that like once you
0: get initiated onto a certain level in Tibetan Buddhism you're not supposed to talk about it right
1: yes and or or maybe talking about it in this way is okay ish like there's certain things I just won't get into but talking about it in a like I'm initiating you would not be appropriate because you you are not
0: a
2: guru
1: because i am not a guru <laughs> so back, so,
0: the, so the guru what is the guru for you it's sort of function yeah. and its connection to tantric practice
1: so this is where mandala principle um you know which which has been used in other traditions as well as you know jung carl jung utilized yeah. a relationship with it and he saw a lot of profound insight from that principle of having a center Mm -hmm. and a fringe so that's what it translates to is you have a center and a fringe and um there's it's almost like having a um a carousel you know you have to have a central point or anything that spins you have to have a central point in order for that spinning to be possible and just like you can look at our our solar system that, that, that is a mandala principle we all revolve around the sun
2: mm-hmm. so
1: the guru it's it's important to understand they are holding that center seat it's not you <laughs> and it's not it's not your deity that you're relating with actually you are relating with your guru through the form of the deity so it becomes your guru is your reference point for your entire path, that they are showing you the way forward on your path, and it's very intimate. It's very intense, and it, it's um, it's merciless. There's no. It's it's very dangerous because it's easy to misunderstand things. It's also very um, intense in that you could be asked to do things that are not comfortable and that are not what you want to be doing granted we i am very fortunate to have a very kind guru who's not not being like oh you should come and spend 3 months in nepal you know studying and practicing um, you know but it's it, it there is this relationship of ultimate complete trust in your guru to show you uh the way to enlightenment and it's it's very it flies in the face of our democratic and um
0: individualistic and...
1: individualistic western world and it's very eastern you know and they have their own because of that relationship or or that uh principle there there have been times when it's gotten really complicated when you know certain gurus you know, there,
0: there can be a Perceived misconduct or real or misconduct, misconduct, actual like misconduct. misconduct. Yeah, I just want to name one thing. It's not that uncommon, right? This notion of the, um, the gatekeeper to the divine. Like,
1: that is. It. That's it. yes, yes. Like that that in the
0: Catholic Church, right? Like, and in a lot of the Christian Church, the Pope or your yeah. your priest, right? Like, like that. This notion that, like, you know, there are these gatekeepers is pretty common, but there's, yeah. there's this element I'm hearing from like the, the guru relationship of trust and surrender yes. as, as primary activities one engages in to, to seek fruition on the path of enlightenment. Yes. And I, like, can you speak to like why the trust and surrender is so important for the practitioner
1: and their own development? That's a great question, Brandon. you're on point man yeah and i think that this is where a lot of folks get hung up is is it becomes this like um it's inconvenient but it's it's this really you're placing any little piece of the ego that was left over from all your preliminaries to get to this point you're putting a that under a microscope and there's this level of you're not able to decide how your path goes, you know, you're being asked to do certain practices a certain amount of time. Um, So there's practices called nundro that prepare you for um, your main deity practice. So nundro is this preliminary practice, you know, a lot of people will do You'll do chants around it, contemplations of karma, you know, samsara, birth, old age, sickness, and death, suffering, um, and virtue, like cultivating a life of virtue, and as well as, you know, um contemplating our precious human birth, like how miraculous it is to be born as a human into um uh, that mean you are having
0: a a dharma talk talking about dharma together through yeah. zoom on other parts of the fucking country in different times and yes. like what the fuck? how does this happen right like well, a lot just of take that happen. in a little bit
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah
1: yeah and so it's so there's these um you're we're being asked to do these certain practices that are you know it's it's still shamatha like we're still talking about our mind being placed on an object but it's of this, like, um, it's of a deity, we even visualize, or, um, you know, it's of, we're having a relationship with the deity that is essentially embodied by your guru. So your guru is, em- you could say your the guru is emanating this deity for you to work with to realize, you know, further compassion, like like with Waitara or um, potency and power, like in Padma Sambhava. He's very popular within Tibetan Buddhism. In Shambhala, you know, it's the Rigdon.
2: Mm-hmm. So the
1: Rigdon principle is the holder of the family. It's also the monarch principle. So the king principle of a kingdom. And there is a level of uh, intelligence, fearlessness and gentleness of genuine warriorship that the Rigdon embodies. And so that's in terms of what you do once you have a relationship with the Sakyong um, as their student, you know, and you've um, gone through a, a, a ceremony. You are empowered to do this practice based on the authority of your teacher and your relationship with the teacher. Who not only has a relationship with you directly, but also has a relationship with this um, this deity. Yes. And so it's it's almost like whenever you practice, it's not like your guru is out there somewhere. It's like the guru principle lines up; everything lines up.
0: There can be like a metaphor around electricity here, right? Yes, like there's sort of currents, and like your your guru has more access to that current maybe maybe even they're permanently residing within that current like that's the sort of yeah. guru principle right whether that's true or not who knows yeah. but like hopefully they have some taste of the current and they can when they you're in their presence they can hold that current so you can know that current and like yeah. they become the conduit from which that those energies can become manifest within yourself that so you can
1: recognize them and then learn to live them yeah it's, that's well said. And it's, you know, it's, um, I think it's also really, it is about having someone also keep an eye on us, you know? And I, I think that there's, <laughs> there's this, uh, there's a lot of people, um, who are in the spiritual world. And I'm sure you've seen this, Brandon, of, um, you know, it's it's very open to interpretation, and there's that kind of there's a big danger in spirituality of us getting high off our own supply. You know, oh, I've never
0: I've never done that, <laughs> never fucking done that,
1: <laughs> never done that,
0: <laughs> never never once have I ever been enticed <laughs> by my own supply.
1: <laughs> and we're all gonna do it. Yeah. Anyone who is asking the big questions is always gonna be like, I I found it, I know yeah, it, I, I
0: fucking know it. it, I got <laughs> it. <laughs>
1: I mean, and I'm I gonna them. tell you about it. Yeah, now I'm gonna build my own center. My I'm gonna, own. I'm, I'm gonna,
0: gonna build and bill. I'm gonna charge
1: you. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna build and bill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and the <laughs> that that's sneaky. It's so sneaky, and I think the we are so lucky to have teachers in our world, and in in many different traditions that hold that principle. So that we don't, we can surrender our sense of being a big deal and let them be the big deal. It's like, thank you for being the big deal. Like that, I can drop that storyline and just focus on cultivating this practice and not feel like um, I need to. Uh, you know, make sure the whole world knows about is because someone else is responsible for that. And, you know, also having a sangha, a community of practitioners is vital. It's so vital. You know, you have groups of people like living here where I'm at at karma trolling, which is we just celebrate our 50th anniversary of practitioners living together and keeping each other honest, you know, and it's like, you see people practicing day in and day out, and you're like, "Oh, they must be so on point and so." Yeah, and they still shit, and they, they still yeah. <laughs> they still do, get do shitty things, and yeah. they get
0: reactive and triggered, and have their own particularities. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it's humbling, you know. You you watch that, and you're like, "Oh, they're going through their process. I'm going through my process and path." And it's just, it's very. There's a quality of reality, you know, that happens like a shared reality. And I think it just really grounds the whole path when you have that with other people. And it's really hard. And I really, you know, feel for so many people out there that they're they're having to ask these questions and go on these paths of really understanding their worthiness without that container, you know,
0: I call them covert bodhisattvas. There you go that they're just yeah. out there doing their thing, going to work and no one knows that they're actually just trying to be a Bodhisattva while they're an accountant or a mom and they're just walking down the street. Everyone thinks they're bought into the game, you know, they're
2: yeah. totally
0: hooked to the game, but really it's being a Bodhisattva for them. And I think there's so many sort of covert Bodhisattvas out there that don't, you know, live in a practice community. And yeah. I just want to give a shout out to them. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm sure you have plenty that you work with.
0: Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, so when you're talking about the guru principle and like uh, the sort of relationship between Zen and Tibetan Buddhism at times, yes. I relate to the schedule, right, mm-hmm. within a Zen center. And I, I've never been a resident; I've always been a um always lived at home. But I, I'll go on week-long meditation retreats pretty regularly, and there's just a relentless schedule. You wake up at four thirty. Uh, by 5 15 you're meditating and everything is precise you're like sitting down at that time the bell rings at that time you get up you walk for 10 minutes you sit back down you do that for hours you eat a meal everything's timed and like it doesn't fucking matter what you want to do. Like, you do you do the schedule <laughs> yep. you just do the fucking schedule that's right and like it brings up all the cackles right all that i don't want to is i prefer this what about that am i doing it good enough do i look as good as him like all these things sort of get flared up and it sounds like in a way that the the guru principle is this mechanism of flaring up ourselves where you can see yourself with more clarity yeah and and that they're they're probably good at it and like they're and they're supposed to be somewhat difficult people historically like they they push your buttons a little bit on purpose
1: in some cases yes you not know, all
0: of, not all of them because some of them are sweet and loving but I, their stories are very rascally gurus right
1: so <laughs> i mean trump rimshay was that to a t and you know there's was, there's was a lot of times he had to work with some unruly students you know there there is a time when um <laughs> there is there's a lot of pot smoking happening back in the 70s in oh, wait, and Trump in the
0: trade. 70s only in this
1: yeah. <laughs> it, it, it actually it's funny i think after this moment you know it's oh
0: yeah he was addressing the the cannabis consumption in the community please yeah, I mean, like, continue he, he, <laughs>
1: He's like everybody come over to to my place he you know he was living in Boulder, Colorado at the time he's he invited all his students, a lot of his students who were pot smokers to come and bring their marijuana and so they they had used uh, I think they only smoked with Trumper of Shea but I understand he's done psychedelics and some other things as well. He tried I've, some heard, I,
0: I've heard some stories
1: yeah and um so they all come expecting like oh we're going to do this great tibetan smoke out with this
2: yeah
1: stony guru practice (laughs) and and then he just takes all the pot and he's like we're burning delusion we're burning delusion and just over and over again and that i think that at that point that's when i think things settled a little bit in terms of the pot smoking and uh Although other substances were imbibed in. I think yeah, he, did,
0: he did love his alcohol, right? He didn't burn his alcohol.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we still, we still have, you know, alcohol here at the, at Trolling. We don't, we're definitely not, you know, partying down. I think it's, we use it very judiciously, but.
0: I, I have a Buddhist mentor and I don't want to add him right now, but like, uh, we talk a lot about cannabis consumption and like how, yeah. Alcohol is really sort of acceptable in Buddhist communities at times. Like I would get drunk with people after meditation retreat, and that was like the practice in the Zen community was at to have some wine, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but like no one talks about smoking weed, and it's like why is one acceptable over the other? And like I don't know, you know. Like it seems like it seems like Trump challenged one, but not the other enough. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> well, what what do you think? why do you think that is?
0: I don't know. I mean
1: community. uh, There
0: I was thinking of this. I I went snowboarding yesterday. I don't go very often. And I had brought a like a spliff, a little bit of tobacco and weed for like during at some point, and it was gone. Like it had just disappeared like out of the place I put it. it. (laughs) And I was like, oh the guru the guru took my split because right now like uh, it was trumpa burning it like burn delusion i was like oh i, I felt a little clenching in my stomach like oh i wanted that <laughs> so I, you know i think we can have gurus outside of our gurus you know like life is a wonderful guru to show us like oh there's your clenching there's your yeah. attachment there's your delusion so yeah yeah
1: yeah <laughs> Let me ask my question
0: what's the specificity of your question
1: why do you think why do you think uh alcohol is so accepted in the zen community
0: yeah i don't know and maybe it's not i've been at other centers and i mean i've even heard it recommended that like after retreat you drink yeah so so you don't make a big deal out of it don't turn don't turn your retreat into something special just wash it away Yeah. And now people recommend wholesome practice, you know, to to go rake raking and clean your house and stuff to integrate it. But
1: yeah,
0: I don't know. I mean, there is this relationship, it seems, to many people that are identified as enlightened masters that are alcoholics by Western standards. And I, I don't know what the connection is there, but I imagine there is something in that why people that are advanced in practice are also drawn to uh, alcohol consumption or or even other substance use so
1: yeah 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 and using substances you know in order to have spiritual experiences you know there's a level of that those having a lot of correlation history. or relationship you know there's sub- a
0: long history yeah. of humans using history. substances yeah. for spiritual experiences
1: yeah yeah, and you could argue that it's natural, you know, being intoxicated is a natural experience. You know, it's just it's so much part of being human. But I think, um, you know, from a I don't know why I'm going here, but from like a therapeutic point of view, I, I deal with addiction, you know, on a, almost a daily basis. And it's hard because I think, yes, we can acknowledge the benefits but I think you, you have to acknowledge the neurosis, you know, just mm-hmm. like liberation. but there's a lot of neurosis there. And maybe maybe a, there needs to be a balance there in acknowledging that, you know, there's, there's a little bit of both that are gonna come up. And the more substances you use, the more that's gonna be kind of in your face. And I think someone who's severely addicted understands attachment and um i think certain certain parts of the human uh reality that a lot of us you know who haven't dealt with addiction just it's it's very hard for us to understand what that's like you know i have i have some friends who were who are practitioners who came in uh the community through recovery and their connection with suffering and the reality of suffering is undeniably like in their bones, it's strong. It's, they don't deny that, they don't wash over suffering, they take it seriously. And I think they understand that first noble truth of Buddhism so much better than some of us who, I think have had the good fortune of not really um, having to deal with that obstacle. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, substances are a big part of Shambhala history, right? In some ways. And like um, Trump has a sordid has history.
1: like. Um, I mean, it, yeah, he medically died from cirrhosis of the liver.
0: How old was he? He was pretty young too, right?
1: He was 47 or 8.
0: Yeah. And there's like something really, I don't know, beautiful to me. Not like dying from cirrhosis of the liver, but like dude was born in Tibet
1: had to flee
0: right when he was in his teens you know he still had he had a lot of training right up until that point because you're brought up pretty young in Tibetan Buddhism
1: age three was was a bunch of people
0: die on the journey He gets like makes it as a refugee to to India and then ends up in Oxford like with some like yeah yeah. was he getting a degree or he was teaching or something right then he comes to America and like there's fucking Shambhala and the whole time he's drinking a bunch yeah and he dies by 40 and he dies by 45 he dies at 45 and like he built a Tibetan Buddhism in America yeah like that's fucking gnarly I heard one person say when he died right something like a zen teacher came I think they were from Asia and had kind of discredited Trumpa but like when they came to the funeral they're like oh he is a force of nature
2: Oh yeah, oh
1: yeah. Like,
0: like he's a force of nature. Like okay, I see now why there's a big deal about him.
1: Yeah, Did you just look up <laughs> at him there? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was. There's no doubt. He is a force of nature.
0: Can you can you talk about Trump? Because like, there's Papa Zimbabwe, right? Is this sort of guy that. Really spearheaded Tibetan Buddhism in Tibet, but then
1: well, who's who's also here with me?
0: Who is also is, has a strange past as like a magician, dark magician and stuff, right? He wasn't like a good guy from the beginning.
1: <laughs> well, you might be thinking of Milarepa. That oh but,
0: Milarepa, did I confuse the two? My bad. I, I
1: but Pema sambhava he's he's a very interesting character. That uh, he's also known as Guru Rinpoche.
0: Yeah, he's like Guru uh, Guru, right?
1: Yeah, well, you, technically, that term root guru is your guru that you initially took. Oh, the, I meant,
0: I meant like he's the root guru of all gurus. Oh, <laughs> he's yeah. like the root, like he's the first, yes. the first root that all the other roots branch off of.
1: Yes, <laughs> you could say that. Yes, well, yeah, he was. I mean, Buddhism was in India, you know, obviously uh, for some time before he came around, like this was back in, I think it was 8th or 7th century when Mm -hmm. he came to Tibet. So he was Indian, he was a Buddhist practitioner, and he brought Buddhism to Tibet. He did not succeed in establishing Buddhism in Tibet. It was still kind of this fringe thing for some time, Um, but he... He tamed demons, you know, there's stories of him propagating teachings and, you know, uh, having relationships with uh, princesses um, who they themselves became empowered, realized practitioners. Actually, Yeshe Sogyal Mm
2: -hmm. is a
1: really important um, figure in Tibetan Buddhism and also in our community um, as the feminine principle but technically she was the first enlightened tibetan mm. she was
2: the
1: first tibetan oh. to become enlightenment so he's relevant in or I, I don't want to go in that direction but, but, then, I, and, but
0: he's incredibly relevant in tibetan buddhism as this figure that brought yeah. brought buddhism to tibet and allowed the yeah. mixing of tibetan yeah. culture and the bun tradition and all the things that mixed together exactly. to become tibetan buddhism exactly. and then you have trumpa that comes to America and does his own mixing, right? Of mixing things together to try to create a an yeah. iteration of Tibetan Buddhism that anchors into sort of the Western culture that's prominent at that time. Can exactly. you, like, you just speak to like what Trumpa is to you and like why he matters and, you know, good and bad. I think he has like a, a little bit of both going on in his history.
1: Well, I think that, you know, Trump Ramsey obviously is such a symbol of, um, I think what it means to be a human in this world that is uh, becoming much more chaotic. You know, he watched his whole culture dissolve um, and fled for his life, you know, and watched other people uh, die. Mm you know, on his way uh, from Tibet to India. And I think this, yeah, as you mentioned, just that, that brilliance of forward vision and heart and, you know, really embodying basic goodness. I think he was so powerful and potent that so many people that would have otherwise just glanced over, you know, anything talking about relating with one's mind or any of the principles of Buddhism they got to see it living in him. And um, there was no denying it, you know, and I think some people were definitely put off. But it's almost like that just that actually just increased this level of, I think, um, validity of who he was in terms of being genuine is that, yeah, when we're genuine, and we're truly who we are, it doesn't mean that we're, telling people off or saying whatever comes to our mind, but I think it's, we're, we're really who we are. And some people are ready for that to meet us. And then some people are not. And, and so I think he, he actually cultivated, he, he brought the Dharma here, but I think his, his son and his Dharma heir, uh, Sakhala Mipan Rinpoche, you know, I, I have much more of, a connection and understanding. And I mean, he's my root guru. So it's, it's like, I can very much honor Trump Rebshe's offerings. But I think one thing that is a dynamic in our community right now is not a lot of people hearken or recognize or really appreciate how the Sakyong has actually created and uh, not necessarily being the point of creation, but, He's really allowed and protected this Sangha to be as big and as influential as it has been in the West in terms of Buddhism. Mm.
0: Yeah, that you have a real affinity for your guru and what he does in maintaining and refining and holding kind of Shambhala currently.
1: Yeah. And you know, right now I mean it's we're in an interesting place that we could we could probably talk about later, but <laughs>
0: yeah man and i don't think we'll get to that today we won't get to that today maybe because i don't know i don't want to just make this about that the the bad right but there is a complicated uh undergoings in the shambhala community the last couple of years right and you can google it and you can find out about it and
1: And and it totally goes back to this which you were talking about earlier with enlightened society like aren't we there already and i think it's the same thing with shambhala on a smaller scale, it's not society, but it's like, aren't we just right where we need to be already? Like and and so there there is more to say about that, but I think um acknowledging that, you know, the Sakyong um grew up in a refugee camp.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: he was born in India, uh actually at Budgaya. His mother, uh Lady Kunchuk, who I've had a relationship with before she uh, a number of years, uh, she passed away in um, 2019, um, but she was just an amazing practitioner, very strong. She was a nun. Um, her relationship with Trump Ramchay is very fascinating. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would recommend looking at that at some point. You know, see if you can find that story. It's somewhere on the web. On the web, but um, she did a pilgrimage all over India to many of the sacred, holy Buddhist sites, and she gave birth at Gaya, where the Buddha attained enlightenment. And, um, you know, the Sakyan grew up in a very challenged situation. He was, you know, uh, was asked to come to Samye Ling, which is a, was a retreat center in uh, Scotland. And so he came to Scotland and this was around the time when Trump Rinpoche came to the West and was really moving forward with being part of, or bringing Buddhism to the West and coming to here, you know, mm-hmm. Barnet, Vermont, to a, a rant, uh, farmhouse that some of his students bought. But, um, you know, the Sakyong was kept at Samye Ling, almost like as a, um, as a political, you know, pawn uh with with the other Tibetan Buddhist teacher um is it Akon Rinpoche or I forget his name but he another Rinpoche yeah he and Trump Rinpoche had this split and so he was kind of holding the Sakyong as like hey you got to listen to what I'm telling you to do Uh,
0: like people were trying to keep Trump in line kind of maintaining more affinity or allegiance with more certain Tibetan Buddhist lineages so they kept his son to keep him in line.
1: Exactly. And th- this was around the time when Trump Ramsey was w- disrobed and married a 16-year-old English woman, uh, Diana, uh, late, who's known now as Lady Diana Mukpo. Um And so obviously any of us would be like, this guy's nuts. You know, he's crazy. What's going on? I mean, we know the end of that story, but um, I think... His son, he really wanted his son to come to the U.S. and be part of him bringing Buddhism to Tibet, and which is a
0: huge part of Tibetan Buddhism, right? That the the lineage is often handed down from parent to child. Sometimes, like a
1: sometimes, yeah, uh, in
0: certain lineages, like more kind of householder lineages.
1: (laughs) Yeah, not all of them, and and I think it's it's um it's really up to the lineage holder how that happens and. Trump Rinpoche really started the Shambhala Buddhist lineage. You could say that it was it's influenced by, heavily influenced by Tibetan Buddhism, and has a really strong connection. But it, it's not the same.
0: It's its own. It's its own thing, right?
1: It, it has certain teachings that are very that came to Trump Rinpoche here in the West, and so it's it has actually its roots here in America, yeah. North America. And I think
0: um, one thing I would just want to highlight, right, is a lot of people have an idea of Buddhism. Yeah. And I think just through us talking a bit, like, there's some Buddhism that's, like, really fucking weird. Yeah. not... <laughs> I get
1: it. And, yeah. The, the, like, I mean, not in a
0: bad way, but there's, like, deities. Yeah. And there's, yeah. like, you know, there's all these things that are happening in Buddhism that, like, in the West, when we talk about Buddhism, it's, like, mindfulness and, like, counting your yeah. breath or whatever. But it's, like, it's just, oh, no, like, Buddhism is this crazy, huge canvas of religion and like whatever you think religion is, Buddhism's probably got some of it going on
2: with it. Oh, totally.
0: And it's not right. this sort of like modernist, perfected, sort of rational religion.
1: <laughs> no, no. no. And, and there's there's this uh, this what's happening right now, I think in Zen communities, but uh, definitely is happening to a degree. But here, you know, in Shemala Buddhism, we are an example of Buddhism landing and acculturating a Western uh, culture, you know, and and really marrying that. So it's, um, you know, the Sakyong, I think as a teacher, he's really, he created this element Mm -hmm. of the West and the East starting to come together, especially in the nineties and the early aughts of how to understand Shambhala Buddhism as not just, this like buddhism light you know mm. where it's like hey if if uh tibetan buddhism a little too much for you and the whole like yeah, this do, you want, do you want to
0: do you want to dip your toe into tibetan buddhism you could check out Shambhala and then get a exactly, real guru somewhere else
1: exactly. it was it was kind of like this how do we make money <laughs> you know yeah. there's a little bit of some people acting like that and misunderstanding but the Sakyong, has such, um, you know, and he he really worked with his father a lot. And they, and you can read this in Shimala Principle, this, it's based on him, the Sakyong's conversations with his father. Um, some of these principles of how to bring enlightened society about, um, and that there's actually a lot of integrity with our teachings that are, that Trumper really unveiled. And the Sakyong is actually writing, Uh, has written, I don't know, maybe like 20, maybe 30 plus texts. A lot of them are restricted. Some of them are, um, uh, withheld, like they're not, they're not available. Can't get them on Amazon. Can't get (laughs) no Amazon. So, but the idea is that when the time is right, and the Sakyan is very precise about this, when the time is right, certain practices, certain teachings will be offered with this sense of moving forward shamala buddhism as a lineage you know and it and it, it has come to this place where we were actually in very 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 deep retreat for 10 years some of us uh with the scorpion seal teachings which uh trump Rinpoche was unable to open but those are the culmination of trump Rinpoche's um and uh you you I have to get. I'm. I just have to get into this. I didn't yeah, want. To, yeah. It's very. So it can be perceived. It's okay. That's okay.
0: Like we can. There's a lot of esoteric shit on the internet now. People are okay with it.
1: <laughs> terma, terma, terma. Yeah. terma. So, terma, Treasure teachings. Yeah. These the... Treasure teachings. You could say um, are are were our origin from originate from Padmasambhava mm-hmm. and there is a whole culture around it in Tibetan Buddhism where there are tear tons who find these teachings so
0: it's yeah. it, like some it, of them were hidden in caves right and people find exactly. them but, but some actually find them within themselves and they write them yes. out too
1: the like what we
0: call in western mind like channeling or something like yeah. that sometimes but it's in yes. Tibetan Buddhism it's not channeling it's terma, and it's considered very part of the the history of Tibetan Buddhism
1: yeah, and it's it's the in in certain situations, and especially is true in our situation, Trump Remshe was a tertan that brought down Shambhala Terma, which you know are a collection of texts that can be read, you know, very like it it has this feeling or the readability of poetry, but it's very instructional. You could say it's the essential instructions in order to create enlightened society. So at the seminal, at the, you could say his peak instructions, he was unable to offer the practices and he, there was a retreat, so he was unable to open that retreat during his lifetime. So there was a hiatus of decades. he,
0: He was building a foundation of something that he saw fruition in his mind or it was given to him a fruition would be more accurate to probably his perspective you know exactly. that he was given a fruition that he was bringing forth yeah and he was not able to realize that in his life but Sokyong maintains that that vision and his opening up aspects of it as uh, Shambhala evolves is that catching it a little bit I'm just trying to catch yeah.
1: it okay. yeah exactly <laughs> and, and you know to be more specific about it and going making a connection to what we we're talking about with tantra is that the sakyong has essentially um empowered the rigden as the central deity of our community of shambhala buddhism whereas before the central deity that you would see on our shrines for the most part was vajradhara which is connected with kagyu buddhism or tibetan buddhism mm-hmm. It makes me
0: almost just think of, in not in like a real direct way, but
2: yeah.
0: like in certain Catholic traditions where Mother Mary is almost hold as the most important yes. figure. That like in religions, these figures can change and move around in different cultures or different times, will hold them with different esteem. Exactly. And like Shambhala right now, Rigdon, is this principle that seems most central to what's happening for you, for your culture, like your religious culture of Shambhala. That's exactly.
2: Little, yeah. Exactly. I know we get,
0: we're, we're getting to time i want to honor your time brother you know um
1: well, we had so much fun
0: yeah, yeah is it just uh two little things right like any last things you just want to share that are just here for you i know we've kind of ranged around as for just any anything left unfinished or anything you just want to name from your heart too you know that feels important
1: yeah i've i really appreciated sitting down and talking with you Is it's been wonderful i've i was a little uh skeptical that we would be able to fill this much time but i Uh, felt like
0: oh yeah we have to end (laughs) it right now right
1: we have to stop stop ourselves (laughs) yeah Yeah. but yeah thank you for doing this i i'm i'm really i've listened to these podcasts and really enjoy it and i think you're doing you're asking some really great questions and interviewing some really interesting people and um well yeah yeah. thank you
0: for coming on brother i mean i so appreciate you as like my first dharma brother so thank you for coming on um and for folks that want to dive into shambhala what would you recommend if they're kind of curious or interested
1: i would say you know um starting with the shambhala principle you know that Mm -hmm. can be a really good place to get a feel for where shambhala is at and um you know shambhala sacred path of the warrior is a great one but also you know, just go to see where there's a local center and, um, you, know, you know, a lot of stuff is online. So yeah. just go to their websites and we, like you could go to our website, karmatrolling.org and join us for evening sitting. Yeah, every just night.
0: like zoom in every night. Just yeah, I'll, I'll put night. a link for that on the, on the show notes.
1: Cool. Okay. I'll,
0: I'll. okay, brother. Thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate
1: you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah it's I'm- delightful.
0: Thank you Thank you for listening Hope that was of some Enjoyment and benefit I just want to take a moment to give a, a Shout out to basic goodness I really love this notion of basic goodness You know, we're just good, and the world's good, even though it's hard to see. And this Shambhala vision of a pathway or doorway to delight, that's delightful. I'd also like to acknowledge the crisis that the Shambhala Center has been in, Shambhala community, I guess I should say, since 2018, when... Sexual allegations of misconduct were brought to the surface. Uh, a number of different allegations towards teachers and uh, attempts to cover up those allegations over the years. It's really rocked the Shambhala community. And I'd encourage you to to check that out to learn more. But but for Nathan, he you know, he decided to stay with the community and keep working with his teacher. And that's his choice, and, you know, I respect that. So, yeah, do enjoy, and I'll see you next time around.